0: I've been a volunteer usher here for the last, oh, since 2010, so more than six years. And last year alone, I um, worked 36 shifts, contributed 180 hours to my volunteer labour to the running of this fine Glaswegian establishment, but who's counting, eh? Who's counting? So, this um, is just one of the many hats that I wear with varying degrees of power um, in this city and beyond. So this venue was actually only picked really because it had quite a big capacity and it was fairly central. Um, And, yeah, we could fit as many people in as possible. But it is relevant because it's one of the buildings that I spent most time in last year. Um, And it's also relevant because it's the second time that I've ever done a talk in in, in a cinema. Um, Before I moved to Glasgow in 2008, I was an usher at a cinema in Nottingham where I used to live for eight years, a cinema called Broadway Cinema. They actually used to pay ushers back in those days. So that's a sign of how times have changed. But after working in that cinema for five years, in 2007, I was invited to do a commission for the cinema based on my experience as being undercover artist-in-residence in in the cinema and then to come and give a talk about my work. Um, So that's a little bit of context. This talk, as we all know, is about the Glasgow effect. It's about an epic project, which, as I'm sure you all know, was funded to the tune of £15,000 by Creative Scotland. It has taken a whole year of my life to complete, where there's been absolutely no escape, literally or metaphorically. This project has been my life, and my life has been this project in its simplest terms it was just a personal challenge to see what would happen if I refused to leave the city where I've lived since 2008 for a whole calendar year from the 1st of January to the 31st of December 2016. On top of that I decided that in order to reduce my carbon footprint to the absolute bare minimum, and also to reduce my expenses to the bare minimum. I wouldn't go in any vehicles at all for that whole time. and I did it! (laughs) I did do it! (laughs) Um, On New Year's Day, uh, I used the data that had been collected on the gps tracking device that i wore on like wore on me every single day for the whole year um, which was actually programmed to send a text message to creative scotland if i went outside the zone <laughs> i used that data to make this heat map showing every single place that i went so i traveled three thousand 753 kilometres, which, as I've worked out, is as far as cycling to London and back three times. Um, And I travelled. Apparently, I've got a laser pointer on here, which is quite exciting. I don't know if you can see the detail of this. I travelled from, Okay, out in the west. Hang on a minute. Oh, I think it's somewhere around here. The Western extremity, Gart, uh, Gartnavel, Naval, Mary Hill, oh no, hang on a minute, Naval, Mary Hill, um, Milton, Rob Royston, Perkhead, uh, Langside, Knit Hill and Priest Hill to White Inch and Govern. And on those travels well, as a result, not going in any vehicles, I saved 3.48 tonnes of carbon, based on this analysis that I did from everywhere that I travelled in 2015. So, regardless of what you think of the Glasgow effect as an artwork, this sort of reduction is something that should be valued in its own right, given the fact that the Scottish Government has signed us up to 80% cuts in carbon emissions by 2020. So just one of the many issues that I wanted to highlight in doing this project is that the value systems and the incentive structures promoted by our society are not always geared up to acknowledge that less is sometimes better for individuals for the society for for society and for the environment so this is how the project ended on the 31st of december 2016 in perhaps quite appropriately a fairly low-key way quite a contrast from how it began, so let's rewind back to January 2016 when the chips hit the fan, (laughs) as I like to call it, and actually I know I've been taking your tickets as you've been coming in and looking every single one of you in the eye, but I was kind of interested to know how many of you here today were absolutely pure raging at me this time last year, could you just put a little show of hands? There's only one, I I fail to believe that. (laughs) Come on, let's do it again, let's be honest. How many? How many of you? Just two, this is not represent, this is. uh, Four, four, okay, six, 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 okay. Maybe not pure aging. Not pure aging, (laughs) okay. And how many are still? Few? Okay, I just wanted to get an idea, because I I didn't sleep very well last night, and I had this vision of being egged. (laughs) I had this horrible vision, and I just thought I would preempt it, and I would like to say, please bear with me, Um, I've actually got so much material, like, this has been preoccupying my brain for more than a year, I've got so much material, but we are hopefully gonna save quite a lot of time for a and a at the end. Um, so I would say don't heckle, don't heckle, but then, Some people know I've done my own fair share of heckling this year, uh, last year, at events that I've attended. I'm looking at Gemma there from um, the Youth Climate Summit because I attended that on the 26th of November and I heckled one of the uh, Scottish Government ministers who was stood at the lectern giving a big speech about how great the Scottish Government was in terms of its carbon reduction targets, having just voted to expand Heathrow Airport when the uh, the SNP mysteriously got a big donation from Heathrow to fund their conference. So I gave that man a heckle. So you've got to call out hypocrisy when you see it. So if you think at any point it's necessary, you go for it because I've got tough skin now. (laughs) Trust me, I have got tough skin. So this project was founded on contradictions. So in hindsight, it's little wonder to me that it combusted in the way that it did. I devised it specifically to highlight and to challenge the contradictions in the lifestyle that I'd ended up living as a 36-year-old in Glasgow in order to illustrate the wider social and economic forces at play. So why the hell was I living here? What the hell was I doing in this city when my day job, teaching at the university, was in Dundee? When my parents, who are now both getting on a bit, are down in London and I feel like I should be down there looking after them and being a good daughter. When my sister, my niece and nephew, we live in Norwich. When most of the work I was getting offered was in cities, other parts of the UK and abroad. When most of my friends here, the ones that I'd met when I was at art school, had either left to go elsewhere or were just too bloody busy, as I normally am, um, to be able to meet up. So I was getting increasingly socially isolated, which is a massive problem for lots of people here in Glasgow. And I would get back to an empty flat every night and just think, why, 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 why? There must be a better way. Um, and Then there was the question of the money. So when I first got my teaching job in 2012, I was so happy that I'd found a good job, that I could help contribute to society and that I could use all the knowledge and experience that I'd acquired through my work to help improve young people's lives. There's a few of my students in the house today there's Tana, I don't want to point you out, sorry. She's right in the middle. Anyway. Um, and the best thing about it is that I could earn enough from working part-time as a lecturer to subsidise all my other activity. So, I could subsidise my artwork, I could subsidise my campaigning work, specifically running the campaign to bring back British Rail campaign to re our railways, which I've been doing since 2009 and I could subsidise my volunteering work here um, without having to worry about any of that activity being profitable. It seemed to me then totally absurd that having finally got into this position where I didn't need the money, that I was having pressure put on me to instrumentalise my art practice in order to raise money. And I would have stomached this if, the money for this so-called research was keeping our university going, was actually improving the students' quality of life. But all the evidence that I got was that it wasn't even covering its costs, and it was taking staff away from teaching. So I wanted to illustrate the absurdity of this situation. So the project was an intended, unintended consequence of a system which places unnecessary demands on its staff. Um, writer John Runson, who some of you might know, who I actually met last year on the fourth of February when he came to do a talk um, in oh, in in the in oh, where was it in no it in the Cafe. No, it wasn't the Black Café. John Ronson, who wrote a book called You've Been Publicly Shamed, says that people are publicly shamed when they're seen to have abused their privilege. That was a big hit that I was prepared to take because I wanted to illustrate how people in privileged positions are more likely to get opportunities and rewards in our society, which only exacerbates inequality. And I also wanted to illustrate that it's privileged people who are the ones causing climate change. It's the global elites with their extravagant, carbon intensive lif- lifestyles who are causing all the problems in the world. The richest 10% of humanity causes nearly half of all of our carbon emissions, which includes nearly all of us here in Scotland, where in Scotland we are using three times more than our annual, three times more than our fair share of the world's resources to fund our carbon intensive lifestyles. It's not the billions of people around the world who are living in absolute poverty on less than $2 a day, who are causing climate change. I mean, their their carbon footprints are completely negligible. And if we're serious about tackling inequality and climate change, then it's privileged people who are going to have to take a hit, Our living standards are going to have to be reduced. We are going to have to radically transform our economic system to find a way of valuing this sort of trajectory. This sort of trajectory. So, as... An artwork the Glasgow effect was a symbolic act of resistance it was a wildcat strike it was a protest against the forces of globalization perhaps in tune with the other global events of 2016 from brexit to Donald Trump it was a protest against the market forces which force so many of us to move so far away from the places where we are born, far, far away from our natural family support structures in search of work. It was a protest against those same market forces which simultaneously deny so many other people such an opportunity for escape. So as an artwork, The Glasgow effect follows in a tradition of the works by artists I really admire. Artists who resist the commodification of their work and artists who really push the boundaries of what art can be. So, to give you a few examples, There's Lee Lozano, who was actually shown in an exhibition in Transmission Gallery last year, quite by coincidence. She did a piece called General Strike Piece in... It's actually 1969. I've got the date wrong there. But where she gradually and determinedly removed herself from the art world over the course of a year. And then her most famous dropout piece, which try this little pointer, was the hardest work she has ever done, something I (laughs) empathise with, where she totally disappeared and was never seen again, from 1970 onwards. And then, Artists like Teixing Sei, who some of you might have heard of, has done a series of year-long performances. This is his most famous one from 1980, where he photographed himself on the hour, every hour, for a whole year. He didn't sleep for more than an hour for a whole year. he did another one where he lived outside for a whole year, he didn't go under any shelter at all. And this is probably the most extreme, where he built a cage in his own studio and locked himself in it without any books, radio, entertainment, anything for a whole year. And Gustav Metzger's Art strike, the first artist to call an art strike. He's a German artist who has been living in London since the Second World War. And he called an art strike in order to bring down the art system, which he believed was corrupted by the commercial values of the art market and by publicly funded artists who were u- being used as puppets for the state. Go Gustav. I've actually met Gustav. He's quite an amazing man. So what differentiates the Glasgow FET from these works of course is the fact that it was publicly funded to the tune of £15,000 as we all know. I did what I was told to do. I filled out the form, I played by the rules but perhaps the one line in the funding application which could now be seen as slightly untrue was this worm all the while reflecting positively on the original site of its making, Glasgow, Scotland, as a center for cultural activity. Even while I was writing and submitting the application under the benign-sounding name think global at local in summer 2015 I knew that I was actually gonna call the project the Glasgow effect I knew that I wanted to draw attention to the story of the city which the council and the government's PR strategy PR strategists, would prefer was kept out of sight and out of mind that is that this city has the worst health inequalities in Western Europe and by health inequalities they mean the difference in health and mortality rates of people on lowest incomes compared to people on the biggest incomes and that premature deaths are 30 percent higher in Glasgow than They are incomparable post-industrial cities in England, like Liverpool and Manchester. And like Loki himself said at our Glasgow Effect event on the discussion event on the 2nd of February 2016, if you're going to do a year-long project in this city and it's not about poverty, then that's the scandal. So, but yet yeah, you wouldn't think that from the yet yeah, you wouldn't think that um, if you were to look at the work that this city's prestigious art galleries choose to spotlight, and the story of the Glasgow Miracle, which they choose to promote. The fact that I only heard of the phrase, the Glasgow effect, in 2015, after I'd already been living here for for five years, and existing largely in an art world bubble, to me is all the testament you need of what a hugely divided city this is, where inequalities in wealth, and the inequalities in health, which result from that, are, are rife so last year this guy Morgan Quaintance uh, who's a writer that I, whose work I really like asked this question why is there not polit- more politically engaged art in these turbulent times and he found it really remarkable that in the most prominent exhibitions of 2016, including Glasgow International, that political activity was was largely absent from what he considered to be totally risk-averse and strangely inconsequential curatorial frameworks. That's a quote. And he says that it's because of growing inequalities that the art world is being becoming increasingly dominated by people from wealthy backgrounds. So had it not been for the funding that it received, this project would not have provoked the debate that it did, helping to demystify how these funding bodies and institutions work, nor would it have succeeded in reaching out to an audience way beyond the art world bubble in the way that it did. So, the Facebook event itself appeared in the news feed of more than one million people, as you can see there, which is kind of crazy, with more than 8,800 writing comments, and that's gone up quite a lot, actually, in the last few days seems to have been rekindled somewhat. So in February 2016, I decided to use this broad demographic to conduct my own public survey, asking, does more money equal better art? And most people agreed with me that no, it doesn't, that actually art can often get worse and more meaningless the more money that is pumped into it. But there was one interesting comment in favour from a guy called Barry Hale. He said that more money can mean that unheard voices can be given a forum through which to be heard. And that's exactly what the Glasgow effect did. And more than that, it it was predominantly young people that it reached. It reached the people who are suffering the most and whose lives are far often overlooked by the culture that this city promotes. This is an image from a tour by Harry Burns, who's professor of, who is professor of Public Health at Strathclyde University which I went to on the 8th of May last year. And, as you can see, it's the so-called psychosocial problems, alcohol, drugs, violence and suicide caused by poor mental health, which are the main causes of premature mortality in Scotland. So these are times of extreme crisis, indeed, These are times of social crisis, they're times of economic crisis. This is a graph taken from that same session on the third of May, which shows how inequalities in income have grown over the course of the last century. In America, but this is a trend which is largely being echoed all around the world. In the UK and in Scotland, these are the people, sorry, these top 10%, these are the people that we should be channeling our anger at. But what we seem to be doing instead is voting these, giving these people even more power and voting them into the highest offices in the world. But of course these are also times of environmental crises. These images are from a film that I made in 2013 called The Other Forecast where I attempt to predict what sort of world we are heading towards based on our current trends. So, increasing energy consumption. This is all real data that I used. Increasing levels of obesity, and the Glasgow Centre for Population Health do acknowledge that the period from 2010 onwards is going to be dominated by obesity and the issues it causes causes growing levels of social isolation and growing CO2 emissions and the temperature increase which results from that so in 2016 while all of this was unfolding and people found ridiculous things to distract themselves with, like deciding whether or not to leave the European Union, global temperatures were increasing to record levels. 2016 was the hottest year on record, and the third of record-breaking heat in a row. 2016 was 1.2 degrees hotter than the 1990 levels, and that is not good news, given that the Paris Agreement, which was also ratified last year, in order, is attempting to limit global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees C in order to preserve a climate where our species can actually continue to survive. And we're nearly almost there already, So when we're faced with such hard, harsh realities, I agree, it is quite hard to justify making any art at all. And this is a question that I wrestled with when I first arrived in Glasgow in 2008. But I came to the conclusion that it would be difficult to quit altogether, because having a creative outlet is essential for a person's mental health, for processing all of the shit that is happening in the world, and of finding a way to give your life meaning. But I did decide that I would try to find ways of creating art, whether that was events, performances, talks, social media shitstorms which would not require adding any more unnecessary objects to the world so when I wrote my dissertation at the end of my two-year studying which was called how to reconcile the careerist mentality with our impending doom I concluded that artists with the skills and the qualities that they've acquired through their education and their upbringing could be a huge force for social change if only they could re-channel just a small amount of that time and energy away from self-indulgent art into direct political campaigning or community organizing instead and these skills include their confidence, their arrogance, which writer Hans Abing notes can often come from the fact that they come from above average social backgrounds. It's also their ability to switch between those different hats, to be adaptive and resourceful it's also their persistence and their dogged determination to complete something that they set out to do, despite all odds. So, by framing the Glasgow Effect as a durational performance, which I could have just completed if I'd have done nothing, if I had done what a lot of people think that I was doing, and just sit on my ass in my flat, like, living the high life. Um, (laughs) I could have still completed my performance. I didn't actually have to do anything. So what I did in framing it in this way was free up a whole year of my time where I didn't have to worry about money, and that I could invest that time in a full spectrum of creative, critical and creative activity from art to activism. I would finally have the time to be an active citizen, to start to hold our public institutions and our politicians to account. I had a hunch back then when I wrote that application, that this activity would actually be a win-win situation. Not only might it help improve my mental health, we can discuss this later, (laughs) but by enabling me to start meeting and working with people here and increase my sense of belonging, A much ridiculed word which I used in my funding application, which, as it turns out, is actually one of the three key things which people in Glasgow and beyond crave in the communities where they live so much. This comes from a presentation by Pete Seaman, who's the head of Glasgow Centre for Population Health, which I went to on the 23rd of November last year, based on research that that they carried out in Denistam. But also, I also thought that this active citizenry, which I hope to carry out, would have a lasting positive impact on the city where we live, starting to tackle these crises head on. And quite by coincidence, Glasgow Centre for Population Health published their report last year in May. I didn't know this was coming, Um, but it essentially solves the mysterious Glasgow effect. And one of them, it's a a very complex um, issue, which I'll touch on later, but one of the many causes of the social isolation and poorer mental health, which contributes to excess mortality in Glasgow, is our city's relative lack of community participation, that is activism or volunteering, compared to two cities in England, like Liverpool and Manchester. So in this common space summary of the report, they write, political activism as quite an intense form of mental stimulation can therefore play a double role in terms of public health. It can stave off the damaging effects of social isolation and exclusion by establishing deep ties and bonds within communities while at the same time, having tangible impact on government, and therefore improving public health via more socially just legislation. So if you do not think that Creative Scotland should be funding this sort of work, then that's exactly the sort of debate I want to start. It's not that we want less people getting the opportunity to actively engage in the city where we live helping to make it a better place we need more we need everyone particularly those suffering in the poorest parts of the city this is part of the solution to our public health crisis so how are we going to fund it so all of the public attention at the start of the year um exposed for me another core tension in the project that is in having this dual role as artist and activist which i sometimes see as completely oppositional so in the newsletter that I wrote on the 11th of March 2016. I kind of acknowledged the irony of this situation, that is to do meaningful, successful community work of any sort, you need to put aside your ego and work in a collaborative, low-key way. So as a reaction to the public attention, my year in Glasgow became the perfect opportunity for me to attempt to live The plan of action, which I outlined in the essay that I wrote in 2010. I'm just going to run through these because I reread this essay last year and I was struck by some of the things that I'd written six years before. This is kind of illustrating how I believe the role of the artist needs to evolve in order to start to investigate, expose and challenge the multiple crises that we face. So, stand back and view the world objectively. Offer an external critique of the system Develop ways of working outside institutions. Escape solipsism. Now this word, me and Peter thought was pretty academic, but basically, stop being such a narcissist, or oh, that's maybe another one. Stop, stop being so such a megalomaniac. And work with and not against your peers. Reject ego and embrace anonymity. Create free ideas, not objects for sale. Abandon the trajectory, find motivation in legacy, in immediacy, in, 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 uh, in not legacy. <laughs> Heavy on words such as abandon, this is a quote from what I wrote. Heavy on words such as abandon, reject, stand back, disengage, the plan of action calls us to make radical changes it demands that we shift our goals away from the fantasy status of the successful artist it makes our new role seem far less glamorous than our dreams may have envisaged insisting that we renounce our vanity abandon our egos move towards collectivism and anonymity in short commit career suicide so um quite a lot of my adoring fans on facebook uh, quite a lot of my adoring fans on facebook have been politely getting in touch just dropping me the odd line and saying oh ellie my good friend what is it you've been up to this year um And, this is one of my favourites. I know I've not given them the answers that they wanted. I've tried to balance the time that I've had between these three things, education, action and reflection, a virtuous circle of activity, which I believe every human being should be allowed the time to do. That is researching and learning about the world, taking action to address the problems that you see, and then reflecting and adapting your behavior and actions. And then researching and learning more about the world, and so on. But in reality, Uh, most of my time was spent in the hard graft of organising, which it seems totally absurd to try to document. It would probably take as long to document as it takes to do. It largely involves writing vast amount of emails, newsletters, Facebook posts for each of the individual projects and campaigns I've been involved in. In 2016, I sent 6,443 emails to 2,665 individual people. I worked all of this out on New Year's Day. I had a fun New Year's Day. Um, I sent 16 newsletters on the various email lists that um, that I managed to... 74,236 individual people. I stuffed 1,129 envelopes. That's largely for the Bring Back British Rail campaign, and that is not abnormal, actually. That is just an annual occurrence. I did countless Facebook posts, which go out to more than 107,000. 677 followers of the various pages that I helped manage. And by the way, I have got a massive spreadsheet with all of this in. I had 176 meetings with 134 individual people and three different working groups that I was a member of. I organized six demonstrations. I attended 14 demonstrations. I helped to organize three public events. I spoke at eight public events, and I spoke at six events via Skype. I organized two public screenings in my flat, which is something that I said I was gonna do in the original application, or that I might do in the original application. And I did this um, as part of the Scalarama and Radical Film, Festi- Radical Film Festivals being advertised as, not one who's put my dress in a, in a public forum, they were advertised as a secret location. Was anybody at those? Anybody here? Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean there's like 20, 20 oh we got one, we got one. Oh yeah, a couple. Couple, yeah. See, it did happen. All of this shit happened. I am not joking. Um, And I also attended 221 public events. 221, which is loads. Um, Talks, discussions, films, performances, exhibitions. Sometimes I ask questions, sometimes I heckle, sometimes I just sat quietly and behaved myself. I have met and worked with many people through the projects and campaigns that I've invested my time in, and hopefully there are a good few of you here today. I think it would be unethical to identify anybody who doesn't want to be. Um, And there are literally thousands of people who, whether they're aware of it or not, will have in some way benefited from my labor last year. Millions of people, in fact, if you include all of the media coverage, not just the media, discount the media coverage from the Glasgow effect, just the media coverage from the campaigns that I'm involved in running. Millions of people. But I don't actually want to dwell too much on any of the individual projects or campaigns that I've worked on here today, because I don't want to risk, they're too important, and I don't want to risk any of them becoming any less successful or effective for being associated with the toxic Ellie Harrison oh. brand. <laughs> Nor do I want them to be mistaken for artworks, as the art world may have a tendency to do, because quite, a lot of them, quite simply, are not. And for political campaigns, I believe that it can undermine the campaign's effectiveness, if it's understood in that way. So, how are we doing for time, Peter? Oh, OK. I have to admit, I was actually still working on this talk this morning, um, just because I've got so much material. I've got so much material. Um, It was a whole year. So according to my notes here, I'm about two-thirds of the way through, so maybe I'll just carry on with this final (laughs) section, which is a sort of roughly chronological um, rump through my year's research and activity, outlining how my thinking developed. Um, and it might get even more rantier from this point on, <laughs> because I haven't quite had enough chance to uh, edit it, but, but here's go, here goes. So in January um, 2016, a year ago, the first few months of the project were m- marked by um, or fraught by uh, not only the public attention, but also the deliberate conflict that I'd created with the people and institutions I had commitments to outside the city. It demonstrated the impossibility of severing all your ties overnight and the fantasy of being able to make a totally fresh start. So from January to March, I was half in and half out of the university where I work. And I kind of deliberately kept ties with them because I wanted to outline the issues that I was addressing with the project. So I gave a presentation to the Center for Environmental Change in human resilience conference last February which looked at the motivations behind this internationalization agenda in higher education and beyond and the negative consequences I believe it has in terms of creating more transient and disconnected communities and also obviously increasing carbon emissions I then wrote this essay and printed 50 copies of it to send to all the senior management at the university and also donated one to the university library and to Glasgow School of Art Library if you want to check it out. It's also available free online. But it's based on research by a psychologist called Tim Kasser on universal human values. I wanted to show how the values that we claimed we had, particularly valuing people, working together, and integrity, were completely at odds with the demands that were being placed upon people. So Tim Cass's research is based on this diagram, which is called the circumplex, and it shows the basic human goals which are found to recur in more than 15 different cultures across the world so the goals on the left are what are called the intrinsic values such as popularity image and financial success read league tables research grants and the intrinsic values such as self-acceptance community and affiliation and this is a quote from tim Kasser that dozens of studies now show now make it clear that people who prioritize extrinsic values experience lower levels of well-being and higher levels of distress if money image and status rise in importance People experience less happiness and life satisfaction, fewer pleasant emotions like joy and contentment, and more, more unpleasant emotions like anger and anxiety. Placing higher higher importance on these intrinsic values and, most importantly, being able to successfully pursue those values is, in contrast, consistently associated with being happier and healthier. The evidence also demonstrates that when a person prioritizes the values on the left-hand side, That the values on the right hand side become suppressed so if you care more about self-acceptance community for example then you're less likely to care about making money or being famous and you're more likely to act in a less famous uh, less selfish more environmentally conscious way and have increased levels of well-being. So individual action may seem like futile, uh, quite futile in the face of global forces, like um, uh, forces like globalization. But it is essential, individual action is essential for a person to be able to retain their integrity And it's only through retaining your integrity that you're able to act instinctively in accordance with your values in times of stress or pressure. So the Glasgow effect for me became about what happens when a person attempts to live intrinsic values and to operate with integrity in a system in a society and in a city which is totally set up to encourage the opposite for starters money is an intrinsic goal and I had to spend the first few months of, this, of, of last year thinking about money quite a lot, because after it transpired that I couldn't donate the money to the university as they'd suggested, I had to work out what the hell I was gonna spend it on. And I was aware that I might not get any public funding for a long time after this. So I wanted to make sure that it would go as far as possible. So I spent a few months analysing my living expenses from previous years in order to work out the bare minimum that I would need, £8,400. So after, I, after all my bills and housing costs were paid, and my housing costs are cheaper than a lot of people's because I own my own flat, I had £80 a week for my food and other living costs. So it's more, much, much more than asylum seekers get. More, Much more than job seekers' allowance, but still a relatively modest sum. Certainly enough to live on. If you're lucky enough to live close to where you work and need to go, close enough to be able to cycle or ride a bike, that you're fit and healthy enough to be able, to, cycle, uh, sorry, to, to walk or ride a bike. Um, and certainly enough if you don't have to pay the extortionate bus fares on the horrific rip-off privatised buses in this city. It's enough if you've got the time and you've got the knowledge to be able to cook cheap and healthy food. And it's enough if you've got that creative outlook, that way of giving your life meaning without having to spend money on unnecessary consumer goods, something that is incredibly difficult in a city which prides itself on being one of the top retail destinations in the well the top retail destination in the united kingdom outside of london on the 30th of june last year i attended another glasgow centre for population health seminar i always saw mark at them actually i am shadow, shadowing mark i thought i thought Maybe, actually, I, probably I shouldn't embarrass anybody in the audience. Sorry, I said I wasn't going to do that. But, yeah, I, <laughs> I, um, I was at an event called The Secret Lives of Low-Income Households, which are very interesting. Um, I mean, I discovered there that I was a low-income household, and even actually on my salary that I normally get, which is £18,884 pounds, that's still only slightly over the threshold, which is 18,500. So there's a hell of a lot under that. And the the presentation was based on a research that was carried out in America um, on people in low-income households. And they did a survey saying, what would you choose? Financial stability or an increased income And as you can see, a vast, vast majority of people chose financial stability. So our economic system may be set up to tell us that we want more, more, more all the time, but that actually goes against our human nature. And the only reason people keep grabbing and hoarding more, more, more is because we have created a system which makes them feel so much insecurity in their lives. We never know what's gonna happen next. So it was at this event that I found out that they were gonna do a similar study into the Secret Lives of Low-Income Households, which was about to start in Glasgow. And one of the things that happened to me at the beginning of the, uh, of the year, because I've got quite obsessive tendencies anyway, I consider myself to be a recovering data collector in that I don't collect data about my life anymore. But it's difficult when you're under so much public scrutiny. So I did keep a, a receipt for every single thing I bought this year. I had a massive pile of these receipts and a huge spreadsheet. It's all been typed into a spreadsheet. And I didn't know what the hell to do with that. Like, Do I really want to make that public? Like, I'm all for um, transparency and accountability and public ownership, um, public ownership of institutions, because it makes them more transparent and accountable. but It goes slightly too far when it's just one individual. But I wanted to do something with these receipts, so I discovered that I could actually use them in some way where it would have some social good by signing up to this study. And the study aims to look at the relationship between how people manage their finances and how they manage their health. So for the last six months of 2016, I was having a monthly meeting with my researcher at Caledonian University, and we were discussing all of these things. The results will be published next summer, oh, sorry, this summer, uh, 2017, and the study is called FINWELL, which stands for financial well-being. Um, apparently, I'm quite an anomaly in the study, maybe because I have actively chosen this low income rather than having to survive on it, but also because all of the detailed analysis that I did at the beginning of the year on how much I would need, enabled me to distribute the money through a um, backs payment so that I knew that I was going to get this regular monthly allowance so that I wouldn't have to think about money too much for the rest of the year and risk that suppressing my intrinsic values. So the aim was that I wanted to get to the point rather than people asking me whether I was getting paid for different activities that I was doing, what was voluntary and what wasn't, I wanted to get to the point where I was just doing the activities I was doing because I really believed in them and I really cared about them. Isn't that a situation that we want to create for everybody? So, Okay, this is where it gets really ranty, actually, these last few pages, because I did just write this this morning, but it's quite fun. (laughs) Probably get me into even more trouble. But it was about March time, 2016, I started to get my confidence back a bit and emerge out into the city after everything that had happened with the social media shitstorm. And the one person... I was really angry at was the head of Glasgow City Council. How could this man who takes a salary of £60,000 of public money every year and whose party has presided over the making of Glasgow's public health crisis since the 1950s. How could this man take a pop at me? (laughs) The Glasgow Center for Population Health Report, which is, I've I've got it down there, and I I recommend that you all read it. It's, It's brilliant. But they acknowledge in this report that one of the causes of poor mental health in Glasgow in the period from 1980 to 2010 has been the hypocrisy of the council. And this is a direct quote. In the 1980s, the council actively experimented and innovated with neoliberal policy measures guided by the maxim, what's good for business is good for Glasgow. These were seen as quite astonishing developments in a solidly labor city, and were were soon to lead to the identification of Glasgow as a so-called dual city with dual urban policy. On the one one hand, high-budget, high-profile retail and property development in the city centre, led by a growth coalition. And on the other hand, a much lower resourced and very limited mitigation and management of poverty and an intensifying social crisis in the city's poorest areas principally in the peripheral estates. So on the 23rd of March, I sent the leader of the council an email. I said I wanted to get together to discuss this. Um, He was a bit too busy to see me, but he did arrange a meeting with his deputy. And the head of Glasgow Life on the 3rd of May 2016, I wanted to challenge them on their record and also to work with them in order to bring a different type of economic thinking. That is economics which puts human well-being and the environment first. Instead of this idea of growth at all costs. So this led to several meetings with council officials and a public event which I helped to organise, which we held at the city chambers on the 30th of November 2016, which aimed to bring new economics foundation who... Are my gurus. If you don't know the New Economics Foundation, do check them up. To bring their thinking about people, economics as though people and the planet mattered, to bring those ideas into the belly of the council beast. The one line that sticks in my mind most in that Glasgow Centre for Population Health report is this one. The economic policy matters for population health. On the 24th of May, um, I met up with another councillor who had actually been a former member of the SPT board. For those who don't know me, public transport is my passion, Um, and SPT, the Strathclyde Partnership for Transport, is the publicly owned body which is meant to oversee this city's entire public transport network. Um, And like many other people in power in this city, this was a man who clearly did not have to rely on public transport himself. I asked him if he had a car, and he took the question as though it was an insult. Of course I've got a car! The one bit of useful information this man gave me, though, which I'm grateful for, is that he told me that the SPT board meetings, which happen every month, are open, the public so I began my unofficial residency at SPT and I attended six of their board meetings there over the course of the year with this t-shirt on I might add (laughs) and I was always there I was always, nearly, nearly always the only member of the public who was there watching them, (laughs) holding them to account, and finding out exactly why Glasgow's public transport network is so much worse than than in other cities. Other cities like Edinburgh, where they still have a publicly owned. Bus company, Lothian Buses, and for those who have been to Edinburgh, I've not been for a while. (laughs) But the buses are much cheaper and have a comprehensive cover over the whole city. And you have trams. And you have trams. And cities like London, where publicly owned transport for London has supreme control over the entire transport network. And in doing that, it can, it can, um, it can bring in charges like congestion charging to disincentivise car use at the same time as reinvesting and building the public transport network. And London's the only city in the whole of the UK where bus usage has actually grown over the last 10 years. On the 7th of June, um, I submitted an FOI, a Freedom of Information, request to SPT. I wanted to know how many of the board members had cars themselves. Anyway, they wouldn't give me this information. But I suspect, I suspect it's quite a, a high majority. Um, and to me, that is the scandal that people who are making decisions about our public transport network are not actually the ones who have to rely on it themselves. So. As I learnt more about Glasgow's history throughout the year, I discovered more about the damage that had been inflicted on its citizens in the massive urban redevelopments of the 50s to the 70s. So developments which have served to create a far less equal and a far less sustainable city Massive social injustices have been done to create the situation that we have now. This map is from the 1930s, which shows a world-class, fully integrated, publicly owned public transport network. A 100 miles of tram lines reaching everyone in all parts of the city that everyone could access. This was all ripped up in 1962 and replaced by this. Something which only the privileged minority in this city can use. So this is a paragraph which I wrote on the 30th of September 2016 which sums up all of my thinking on this. Glasgow is the city with the lowest car ownership in Scotland, 49% of households compared to 86% in Aberdeen. Yet our cityscape is completely dominated by the sight, noise and smell of motorways. This car-centric infrastructure has created a divided city of haves and have-nots. Those who own cars and can glide over the epic flyovers and experience their spectacular views, and those who have to negotiate the underworld of underpasses and endure the noise and air pollution which filters down from above. But increasing car ownership is not the answer to inequality. Glasgow Centre for Population Health research shows that the sedentary lifestyle, which car use encourages, is actually even more hazardous to health than smoking. Instead, we need to radically rethink our city so that everyone can get around easily and live happy and healthy lives without need or aspiration to own a car. So this disastrous planning of the 50s and 70s has created a situation where car ownership is now used as a measure of deprivation. I found out about this at the Public Health Information Network seminar that I went to in September 2016. You are deprived, indeed, because you cannot access vast ways of the city's infrastructure, and you have to make do, make do with a shambolic bus network instead. And it's the stigmatization that comes with this which has such a profound impact on mental health and explains why that counselor probably wore his his car like a badge of his success it was margaret thatcher (laughs) of course, who deregulated the buses in 1986, um, which paved the way for the mess that we have in Glasgow now. And then, quite cruelly, she supposedly said this, this is not totally attributed to her, but she said, you should consider yourself a failure if you're still on the bus at an age of 30. But bus regulation has been a devolved matter in Scotland since the parliament was set up in 1999 and successive Labour and SNP governments have failed to address this as an urgent priority which totally undermines their claim to poverty proof their policies. At a presentation that I went to on, The 6th of October 2016, uh, it was actually an activist training day run by Friends of the Earth about air pollution. Somebody from Cycling UK presented the details of one of their campaigns, which is based around this idea that a third of all journeys made by car are under five kilometres. So what they aim to do is to shift all of those um, journeys onto biking or walking instead to drastically cut air pollution and carbon emissions. So going back to my heat map from 2016, that's a five kilometer radius. And, as you can see, I rarely went outside of the distance that they're trying to encourage people to cycle, as what's seen as being um, about as much as people could reasonably be expected to do in a commute. The fact that Glasgow's peripheral housing estates which I mentioned earlier, all way beyond that five-kilometre radius, just shows the extent to which redevelopment in the 50s, from the 50s to the 70s, has not only created a spatially divided city with the Glasgow Miracle largely taking place within easy reach of the city centre, whilst everybody else is stuck outside, but also the urban sprawl which was actively encouraged, not just in the um, peripheral housing estates, but also in the new towns, which are even further away and were spread across the whole west central Scotland conurbation This is exactly the opposite of what you need to build a sustainable city where people can easily walk uh, or cycle to where they need to go. 300,000 people uh, drive into Glasgow every day. 150,000 people every day from Lanarkshire as a result. Now you get to see this fun GIF, which I made between the 24th of March and the 23rd of May 2016. It's the view from my studio, which looks over the M8 and up to Royston. And it shows what Chris Leslie, who's somebody who I've met quite a lot last year, as documented as being disappearing Glasgow, the fact that a third of all high rises that were built in the 60s have disappeared in the last 10 years. Um, Whether it's a good idea to smash up and relocate these communities yet again remains to be seen, but it does at least show that radical change in this city is more than possible. In, 20, in Last year, uh, Nicholas Stern, who published the Stern report, the famous Stern report on the impact of climate change in 2006, spoke about the urgency of this period in time in terms of the infrastructure that we choose to build. Because the infrastructure that we choose to build, if it's high carbon infrastructure, like roads, an airport expansion. Then we are locking in high-carbon lifestyles for decades to come. So some of the um, mistakes of the past are being rectified; others are just simply being repeated, doing exactly the opposite of what we need to promote a more equal and sustainable city. We're spending yet more money on another city center redevelopment plan when all the evidence shows that we need to be redistributing wealth to the periphery of the city, not creating even more polarization between the two. We have 60 million pounds being spent on a new motorway in the East End of Glasgow, which is actually continui- continuing the flawed plan which was set up in the 19, which was dreamed up in the 1950s before they knew about the impact of car use on air pollution and climate change, and the massive health risks caused by the physical inactivity that that encourages. But the council have agreed to build this final leg of the so-called East End regeneration route right through the heart of the East End where only, um, where 57% of people don't have access to cars. And from just before Christmas, this is a Scottish government budget which shows how Motorways and trunk roads have the biggest increase in spending. (coughs) I maybe should skip this bit, because this is when I go into a rant about electric cars. But this is the Blyswood Hotel. To me, this is inequality on wheels. This is what happens when you waste lots of public money on the richest people, privileged people in society who do not want to give up, though, any of those privileges. They like to believe that they can continue dri- um, driving. And the reason I want to show this is because it evidences the needs to address social environmental and economic problems at once i want to end with a note of optimism very important activism works if people are allowed the time and resources and are empowered enough to hold our leaders to account, then change can happen, especially in a small country like like Scotland, where the Parliament is relatively close by. Um, And on the 20th of December 2016, we submitted a petition to the Scottish Parliament, petitions committee with 1,700 signatures demanding the re-regulation of our country's buses. On the 5th of January 2017, just three days ago, We held a public meeting with passengers, unions and other campaign groups to demand the public ownership of ScotRail. If these campaigns are successful, as I hope they will, then it will be the beginning of the urgent process to rebuild a world class, (laughs) fully integrated, publicly owned public transport network for everyone in our city. And if any of the other projects and campaigns that I've been working on, um, and which I will continue to work on, uh, are successful, then I hope that it will be in some way down to the time and energy I was allowed to invest this year. So, I came here as an economic migrant in 2008, in search of the Glasgow miracle. We are the most loathed of human beings, I believe. I didn't realize quite how much, of course, until last year. But the outsider's view can offer useful perspective on a city based on their experiences of having lived in places elsewhere. So, I'll just finish up with the two things that shocked me most on my first night in Glasgow in 2008. It was when I bought a portion of chips and I discovered that all the chip shops in Glasgow use saturated animal fat to cook the chips in, which is like totally the opposite from Nottingham where all the chips are cooked in unsaturated vegetable oil, which was such a shock. And it also meant that I couldn't really eat them, seeing that I'm a vegetarian. But then there was that motorway. I just could not believe my eyes that you had to cross a six-lane motorway just to get home. And Glasgow is the only city in the whole of the UK that has to put up with that. It is not the norm. And the fact that it's not even mentioned in that Glasgow Centre for Population Health report I think is a massive oversight given the profound social and environmental damage that it does. So now... (laughs) I'm so sorry. It's been so long. It was th- how long was our interlude? Fifteen minutes. 15 minutes. Okay, we're gonna now um, hand over to Peter, who is going to um, chair a discussion. Um, Peter, I met in 2009, I think, at the art school when he did a he he got us to read a book called Wire Artist Poor which I thought was actually a very interesting book. Um, And it's actually where I first heard about those intrinsic and extrinsic values, and he now kind of works in an anonymous and collaborative way as part of an organization called Wave Particle, (laughs) where the wave being inside the system and the particle being outside the system. And he's interested in the tension between the two, so I I find that all that fascinating. Please come up and join me, Peter.
1: Okay, so I think. I think we have a good wee bit of time, and now I'll just ask uh, Janie and Michelle to quickly introduce themselves. and I think what we'll do is, we thought we would uh, do a wee bit of Q&A with Ellie, but I think really what we're most interested in, what Ellie's most interested in, is questions from the room, so what I propose we'll do is, uh, there are some questions we'd like to ask but I think we'll we'll privilege the room first of all. We'll take your questions in threes. We've got an usher on either side. If people could really uh, wait till they get the microphone to speak and ask the questions. We'll take your questions in threes. We'll then put those to Ellie and we'll try and get a conversation going. If there's any gaps, we'll get to ask our questions. I think We'd be the, we've probably got half an hour of time now if we push our luck a wee bit with the GFT to just draw out some of the most interesting thoughts that you got. So, Guys, do you want to just quickly introduce yourselves?
2: Hi, I'm Michelle Emery Barker, and I'm curator for WAS Studios. Um, Ellie has her studio uh, with, in our organisation.
3: Hi there, my name is Janie Nicholl and I'm the president of Scottish Artists Union which is the main campaigning body in Scotland representing visual artists and craftspeople. Okay.
1: So uh, once again, could we, just, could we just start with a wee, uh, uh, a wee thank you, We've, uh, we'll thank Ellie in her time but could we thank the volunteer ushers who are going to be rushing up and down now trying to bring you a wee mic. Thank you very much the volunteer ushers. So, um, could we, take, could we take the first three questions, please? So the deal is, if I see a hand up, I'm gonna point at you and I'm gonna try and get you a mic. Could we start with the gentleman at the back? Could we get him a microphone, please? We'll take your question. And guys, can you note the question and then we'll take the next one.
4: Hi, Early. I think one of the criticisms or the lacks of understanding early on in the project was very many people in the public see artists as people who make things, a picture, or a thing that you could hold or possibly buy. What is the closest, do you think, to a thing that you could say you've made this year that you could point to people and say, that's the thing I did? Okay, brilliant.
1: Thank you very much. So it's that idea of, but our artists seen and are understood to be object makers? And uh, asking that question back to Ellie, and if there is a kind of tangible, physical thing, or, you know, she's already touched on that. Thank you very much. Okay, if people, if you feel like you'd like to identify an organisation that you represent or, or anything else, please do that. If not, that's also perfectly cool. Could we take a question here from this gentleman uh, with his hand up? Thank you very much. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for that. It was an amazing talk. Um, I just want to put a wee, I want to
5: find out your opinions on, because it sounds like you've had an amazing chance to do something, which I think everyone should have a chance to, which is like a citizen's basic income. You've basically had an income that's allowed you to, explore whatever the hell you want to explore, and it sounds like you've done like amazing things with it, man. So I would love to hear what you guys all think, um, talk about activism and your artistic opinions and your uh, kind of political opinions on a citizen's basic income.
1: Brilliant. Okay, thank you very much. Basic income, as people will probably have seen, is now being discussed as Glasgow being a trial city for the basic income. Uh, very exciting, and I think in relation to many things Ellie's interested in, very topical question. So, basic income, thanks very much. Maybe uh, one question from the front here if we could get it. We'll try and get to everybody's questions if we can.
4: Thanks. Um, David Jameson, a journalist with the Common Space uh, News website. Um, is it not um, a limitation of your project that it didn't explore the relationship between poverty and wage labour? And we now know from statistics that most people that live in poverty work. Now, I know you worked in the project, but you weren't receiving a wage for your work, which is obviously part of the history of poverty and the contemporary reality of poverty in Glasgow. So
1: the question being, uh, you know, the tensions between poverty, wage labour, and is it a failing of the project not to maybe get its teeth directly into it, or maybe the project did. Okay, thank you for the first two questions. The rest of you please hold on to your questions. Um, Ellie, do you want to choose which one to take first? Subject. yeah, this I guess maybe
0: person. the oh, yeah, maybe, maybe the maybe the last one first. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a completely kind of unnatural situation that I was in, um, but maybe just so it, it, yeah, so that I think it links on to your question in that maybe the way that I was living was a sort of prototype for how we hope other people, everyone will get the chance to live in the future. Um, So is it enough?
2: Did Did you think that you should deal more with the relationship between low income and for people that are working so low wages low rates of pay and poverty
0: (coughs) yeah i mean the thing about actually i will say a bit more about this sorry i'm a bit tired because i couldn't really (laughs) sleep last night um but the thing i want to say about this and i'm actually speaking at the event the citizens the universal Basic, basic income event in february they've been doing like monthly events, and I will be at the next one in February. We can go into this in a bit more detail. But, um, yeah, I guess one of the things that concerns me the most is the way that the cost of living has exploded out of control since all of our basic services and industries were privatised in the 80s and 90s. And actually, that's where I, I think the fight should be To reclaim all of the things that we all need in the world to be able to live. Our energy, our housing, our transport. We need to reclaim those things. They're our things. They should never have been taken away. To bring down the cost of living. People don't need to get paid as much as they get paid. And so... That's where I think the fight should be, because then we don't have—we d- all don't need to have so much money. Like, that's the ideal situation, in, in, in my view.
2: the other question, I guess, that you haven't really touched on is um, this kind of understanding of what artists do, artists yeah. are people that make things, and, and you, I guess, what's the closest thing that you've done this year to a, oh. a, an object or thing? I think um, I was talking
0: to Peter about this last night and I think like everything that I've been through has been quite intense, but it feels to me like a maybe a bit of a birthing pang to enable other artists to be able to work in this way in the future, more artists to be able to work in this way in the future, because I understand that people don't understand what I'm doing. Somebody wrote me a comment the other day (laughs) on Facebook saying that they'd done a shit that was more talented than me, which I thought was rather nice. Um, But I um, am probably going to get loads more now. Um, But yeah, I think you know, I believe that this is the way we need to be investing critical and creative skills. Like, I hope I outlined that this is a crisis time um, in terms of this infrastructure that we're choosing to invest our money in. Um, so, I mean, I have I have made things I've I've made T-shirts, I've made pamphlets, I've made all sorts of stuff. Um, But, like I said, I don't really want any of those things to be seen as artworks. Um, I feel like this process, all of it, is amazing to have made something so big with no physical form.
1: Could I just ask, Ali, I was interested in asking the question, how many people in the room would class themselves as an artist, just out of interest? And therefore, could I ask how many people in the room would not class themselves as an artist by show of hands? OK, a good number, great. You'd say two-thirds artists, one-third not. I think that's really interesting, part of the the project. OK. We're sitting on a few questions, but I'd like to take another three questions. If we could, could we just go through the same process again? Could I get the mic to this lady with her hand up here?
6: Hi. Um, Thanks for that, Ellie. Um, You keep um, going back to the point you don't want to talk about what you made or what art was produced. Um, And the talk was interesting, but maybe a little meandering. And it feels like this year is too much to fit into an hour, Um, and you've discovered so many things by maybe the reaction in January last year that have put you in a position where you just wanted to learn, 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 read, 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 discover, Um, and you keep saying you're knackered. Would you say exhaustion from actually immersing yourself in this is an outcome, and maybe that's an artistic thing, that referencing the artists you talked about that had inspired you doing year-long projects? Like, you must be, exhausted um i'd love you to talk about that and how you emotionally feel um and um what are you going to do next
1: so a nice question sorry
6: that was a really annoying long q a (laughs) one but i just but a nice
1: question about exhaustion and uh, can i just also just clarify the point about um meandering which is quite interesting in terms of what you said about the contradictions that the project began with and continued with I think when you deal with complex situations, and how you present those, that the, you know, Ro- Roland Barthes said about the speaker who tries to acknowledge the complexity of language. If they, t- if they try and acknowledge that while speaking, they look like they're a meandering idiot. And I think that's really interesting sometimes to say, how do we represent complexity? So, And how do we deal with <coughs> contradictions as well? So, and what comes next? Okay, two more questions, please. Um, Lady in red, when you wear red, you're unavoidable, so...
6: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the talk, that was um, really inspiring. I'm just wondering, talking about the, you spoke about intrinsic values. Um, I work with young people and I was wondering what your thoughts are on creating the conditions for people to um, express their intrinsic values and to know
1: them. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm just staying with this side of the room for the moment. We'll get to you guys over here in a second. And person,
4: Uh, thanks very much. Hi Ellie. Um, I actually read your funding proposal. The sentence that stood out for me that I found very interesting was that you write that it's the role of the artist to uh, the role of the artist to take extreme lifestyle choices, which would not be possible for the ordinary and less privileged person. Uh, And I found that quite interesting. So what I want to ask you is, the meat of this project was the commitment not to leave Glasgow for a year. And as has come through in your talk, you seem to acknowledge that the life you were living was in many respects more privileged in terms of financial uh, stability and so on than, say, an unemployed person or an asylum seeker. So I, I really want to explore why do you consider not leaving Glasgow for a year to be an example of an extreme lifestyle choice? Which only the artist is in a position to take. Thanks.
1: So maybe we could uh, maybe you could maybe that's a good one to respond with and to say is that how you would define it and uh, and if so how does it become extreme?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean I think that the reason this was so extreme was because of the fact that i had so many commitments outside the city i mean it was specific to my life um and that that created all sorts of tensions that i had to sort of embody all year and actually like embodying all of those contradictions channeling and the, the, like I said at the very, very beginning of the talk, which seems so long ago now, so sorry, uh, was that um, there was no escape for me from this project because I'd set this framework that even when I was awake in the night worrying about my family, that was part of it. That anxiety, was channelling that was all part of it so it was it was extreme and I for me um, and I think like in terms of how the maybe the mental health problems that I got as a result of the project would be less like somebody who hasn't been able to leave the city for social economic reasons more like a migrant who couldn't leave for however many reasons, who was thinking always about somewhere else, somewhere else in the world, um, and the anxiety of not being able to go there if you need to. So that was what was kind of extreme for me. So maybe that feeds into the first question (laughs) that i mean i it has been the most exhausting thing and actually i didn't put this in my talk it would have made it even longer but i i think like the um in the first few months i was trying to do more things like social things and sort of having a normal life. But just the sheer amount of pressure, I just got to the point where I just couldn't take any time off. Like, I just could not have any days off. So I I counted 12 days off that I had. Five were at Christmas, but then I realised I was actually working on two of those days over Christmas anyway, so it's less than 12. But... And those were only when people came to visit me and sort of forced me to stop because it I just could not stop like there were so many things that I wanted to to achieve before the end of the year, and that I just felt so much like pressure to do that, and that was incredibly unhealthy, and <laughs> like even I was just last night when I couldn't sleep in bed again, like I was just thinking even since the 27th of December, which is when I started working after Christmas, like I've just worked flat out since then, and that's even like more than 10 days in a row. Like, That's not normal, but that was just a snapshot of what my year has been like. So it's, yeah, it, it's not sustainable. <laughs> so,
1: so maybe just to take the tail end of your question, which was to say, and, and what comes next? Maybe I could add a wee question to that, which is just to say, Elliot, in the light of what you've said, uh, and also in response to what the gentleman said, how do we define this as extreme? uh, I think it's clear to anybody listening to you that you have put yourself through with a great deal of rigour, through a really hard time. And yet, at the same time, I think you want us to embrace the possibility that the, the creative outlook gifts something to the activist. So, if we're trying to pitch that to the activist going forward, what advice are you kind of giving yourself about how you how you're good to yourself or how you take on what you've learned from this, but how do you endure with what's good about what you've done and set aside what has been you know pushed you to an edge?
0: Um, yeah, something that was actually uh, I think all of this the conflict that that I felt was, um, well, it was all the things about my commitments to people outside the city, but it was also... um, It was also um, this tension between art and activism, which I highlighted, and actually, like, old-school socialists in the 19th century kind of talked about a time when art itself as a category would wither away and it would wither away because everybody in society is able to have a creative outlet and we don't need to point the finger and say that person's an artist and that person isn't because And and actually, the fact that we do that creates division. It creates a specialization. It creates a lack of understanding. It creates all sorts of problems which have been played out over the last year. So that's something I'm really profoundly interested in. And I'm interested in how something like a citizen's basic income may enable some of those divisions to start to wither away.
1: Again, this brings us nicely to the third question, or, or the second question, actually, from our lady in red, which I think again brings us to another contradiction in a in an education system in a society which privileges numeracy and literacy. How do we encourage in our children uh, to embrace their creative side, their kind of intrinsic value system? Is that a fair? Yeah, thank you. So. So that contradiction, again, is perhaps, you know, how, d- how do we, yeah. you know, beyond mechanisms like the universal basic income, how within our ed- education system, or how in other ways, how in the bringing up of our children, do we, d- do we support the intrinsic values that you were, that you were?
0: I would say not on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I think social media is, I think people, people treat, People differently in real life. I mean, that is a fact. You see how many people put their hands up to say they hated me in this room, but people quite happily will write every single day how much they hate me on Facebook. And I think the thing I hate about, and I've all, you know I've had a very much a hate li- like a hate and like relationship with um, social media for quite a long time um and the thing that i think we need to acknowledge is that these people are all on their own engaging with the screen it's not social in the slightest and the moment that screen is switched off you're on your own again and you might feel like that's a connection with a real human being for a moment, Terry Flash, but it's not. So I think we need to create situations, as many situations as possible, where people come together in real life. So one thing, i that's why I organised the talk today, was exactly for that reason, Um, and... That's probably also why these questions that I'm getting on uh, the web feed are probably going to be a hell of a lot more hostile. We're we'll trying yeah, to get oh, the good ones. Okay, we'll try and get onto them. Um, so, uh, yeah, like, um, yeah, one of the things I one of the, one of the things I th- sort of thought last year is that actually social media is only useful for arranging instances of meeting up in real life but I mean it's a beast out of control it's a totally a beast out of control so yeah I think that that's the the number one thing really meeting in people in real life
1: and notwithstanding that, uh, thanks, Kevin, for the questions we've just received and we are live-streaming, and it's great that we are also receiving questions from online. So, Ellie, I'm going to hand those to you to pick one to answer. And could ask for three more questions from the room, please, <laughs> if there are three more questions? <laughs> if we could get a microphone to the Lady Dead Centre here. At uh, the back.
7: Um, first of all, I want to apologise, um, Ellie, as a Glaswegian, if you're feeling that you don't belong to Glasgow, because I hope you do, and I hope in the last year that you've felt that. I can understand why some people responded to um, what you posted initially, but we don't need to go over all that again, because I'm sure you've spent enough time on that. But what I was curious about is you spent a lot of time focusing on transport, and that's obviously a passion of yours and something that you're um, an activist in, and that's great. Glasgow has many issues, Um, and we need activists to deal with a lot of Mm. those issues. And one of the things that stood out for me that you talked about was car owners, you've seen that as a privilege, yet you're a homeowner. Mm. And uh, cars are so cheap now. (laughs) You know, I mean, much cheaper than even a mortgage for people to hire. I'm just, I think perception is everything. So I'm curious to know, from one activist to another, why, for instance, housing isn't, something that you wanted to get involved in. Mm. But public transport is, and personally, I use public transport every day, and I'm a car owner, and I find that I come all the way from Drumchapel into the city centre of Glasgow, I have no problem with the public transport.
1: Great, okay, great question, thank you very much. And as we well know, as often cited in many other parts of Europe, there's not such an obsession with the need to buy a house, and the idea that you're talking about hoarding and collecting, how culture, kind of really you know, makes something impossible almost to deny, that we have to get on the ladder of the, have to get a mortgage and all the rest. In other parts of Europe, it simply isn't the case. So maybe it's a particular UK-wide obsession. So thanks for that question. Could I have two more questions? Are there any, uh, there's a question right at the front here as well. Um, I've got two
5: questions. Okay, but I wrote them both down, so you can choose which one you wanna. <laughs> thank say. Great, thank
1: you very much. Do you want to call both of them out so that oh at least... Okay, two questions, and could I take one more one more question? Then I'm going to ask you both for a weak question as well. Is there one more question in the room? This group, we're getting through them. Uh, I felt like I was under looking. Sorry, at the very back there, the gentleman with the hat, I think, yeah.
5: Hi. Uh, this relates to a question earlier um, regarding a question uh, regarding making objects. Um, given that um, you, as an artist, and there are other artists in the room, I presume that are also uh, non-makers per se, um, and they've made the choice to be non-makers in order not to engage. With uh, the capitalist system within the the art world, um, how would you how would you frame um, your stance on uh, an artist not engaging in the art system, the capitalist art system? Perhaps I- you would like to frame it in relation to. Suhail Malik's stance on art, exit from contemporary art. Although that's a bit of a heavy subject.
1: Brilliant, thank you very much. So a question about the potential, again, that career suicide exit from the art world question. So we now, uh, Ellie's now facing six questions. We thought this was a good idea to to ask the questions this way, whereas I'm realizing uh, it's actually, you're now facing six questions. So which one would you like to take first? We can remind you of which they are. Uh We've three from the internet, two more handed over on paper, and two from the floor. So that's actually seven. <laughs> Bad maths.
0: Oh my goodness. Ooh, um, the one I can remember the most is probably your one in the middle uh, about the. I mean, as I mentioned before, about the fa- about all of the things that were privatised from the 80s onwards being and the basic things that we need to live in the world housing with all the council houses that were sold off energy transport um the list goes on um and the i mean another project we haven't even had time to talk about at all i think i focused on transport because i guess that is um the thing that relate, that 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 links environmental justice specifically with social justice um, and I also have another renewable energy project which I've been working on this year which we haven't had time to talk about um, but absolutely all these issues we need to look at but I think it goes back to just thinking about what it is we need to live, um, and how we can best provide those things for everybody in our society. Um, And when I bought my flat, I was exactly thinking what Peter had outlined, that I want to get to this point where I don't have to worry about money, so much like i want to get to this point where i've got a stable situation um so that i can um do crazy things like this i suppose um so absolutely i was thinking very selfishly about what i need to live in the world and that's the way that we're all programmed to to do in our contemporary society. It's very much about how can I get what I need without thinking about how can we provide what everybody needs in a fairer way.
1: Whereas where you know w- were we in a situation, maybe we have a quite a good situation in Scotland where we have stable housing provided by housing associations where long term tenure is feasible, rent increases aren't horrific. Uh, the price of rent is reasonable. Those, those things, as they are in other parts of Europe, become <laughs> maybe more possible. And maybe, you know, that's also possible. Would you like to nominate another question, Michelle? From, uh, just, I mean, from our group here. And did you have a choice of your internet question? So we'll, maybe we'll take an internet question on the list here.
0: These are amazing questions. I just want to say thanks to Anne.
1: Um. Enough, enough
0: and Nuff Nuff and, and Dougie for these questions. Um,
1: I'll ask the question. Yeah. Which one do you want?
0: Oh my word, they're all quite difficult. I don't
1: know that one. OK, uh, question for Auntie is, given the preponderance of white, fat, middle-class men with cars on quangos, how can you get better planning for all, revolution or evolution?
0: I think that's a brilliant question. I mean, it's one of the things that I've totally witnessed this year. And it's something that we really, really need to challenge. Um, And I think that is, you know, this is why we're getting such bad decisions being made.
1: Um, Can I ask you this one? Yeah. Uh, This was a question uh, from Anne, I think, over here. Uh, Would you consider yourself a member of the mainstream media stroke a journalist?
0: I think that's interesting. I was looking at some of the coverage, I shouldn't have been actually, but yesterday, just yesterday, there was an article in the Herald and it really tried to make me out as an ogre. And I was thinking that actually, and actually when I did this, I did an interview on the radio on Friday and I think a lot of people are scared uh, of what I'm uh, really terrified of me now, and actually, like one of the things I wrote down uh, quite a lot last year was, "There's nothing more dangerous with a, than a woman with nothing to lose." And I feel like I kind of broke through that threshold to the point where I can say the unsayable now, and I will. And these, a lot of people are, are very, very, very terrified by that, especially people who want to protect their privilege. And that is why I think the media are, are continuing to make me into this ogre and probably will continue to make me into an ogre. So, no, I don't consider myself to be part of it. I could s- consider myself to, to be challenging it.
2: Um, I Someone up the back asked um, about artists that are non-makers um, as a stance to not engage with the capitalist system. Um, and wh- how would you frame your stance on that, which I guess tied in with uh, sort of some of the things that I might have been interested okay. in asking you <laughs> as well. Um, and I guess what I'm interested in, you know, I guess a lot of what you're doing is not what we expect an artist to do, but you are, you know, as an artist, w- What do you think you can bring to this, particularly to being an active citizen or activist? And also, how can you encourage more artists to think that that's a viable practice, like that's a good way to work? Um, What needs to be done to make that happen? Mm.
0: Good question. I mean, it does... The project that I didn't really mention is the one that I've spent quite a lot of time on this year. I did have to edit, like, down all the material that I had. But I'm trying to set up a new funding scheme which will specifically encourage radical art and activism in order to not only make that sort of way of working more visible, but also provide some sort of um, support structure for that to, to happen and to continue to grow, especially in Scotland. And the other question?
1: and am sorry, just to say, so oh. that support structure is a renewable engine that generates...
0: Yeah, I guess the idea is based on, I mean, redistributing wealth from the proceeds of um, selling energy. So redistributing that through grants. We don't know exactly how... The, how the grant scheme will work at the moment, but there's been a lot of meetings this year to to work out what the aims and values of the organisation would be, and we have got to the point where we're now set up as a community benefit society, which is a form of cooperative that is um, constituted so that it can only re- redistribute its wealth in a in a certain way. So slow progress is being made on that, but it is. Epic, but you know, I think this is this is a lifelong project, another lifelong project that I've got, and it's going to take that long to to get it to to take over yeah, the world. I, mean, I think I think that <laughs> that
3: leads to the kind of uh, I suppose m- my interest as president of Scottish Artists Union is the sort of role of artists within society and how artists can maintain careers in what is currently very precarious. Working situation for artists. Um, so I see Ellie's um, Radical Renewable Act, Art and Activism Fund as, uh, as a, a real kind of beacon of a way that artists can. I mean, th- I think within this project, the the criticism that Creative Scotland um, kind of um, had for funding LA raises a lot of issues about you know who should get funded, what should get funded. These are all kind of in the ether. Um, and it is good that we're talking about mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it is an issue of, of how do we as a society support people who are innovators, who are creative, who do want to make changes, who do want to think out the box. And I mean, I think it's becoming more recognised within society that as we are dealing with precarious, ing- precarious working situations where many, many um, um, occupations are dealing with what are now to be considered as c- uh, zero hours contracts I mean we can look within further education and higher education with a, a sort of impending crisis on those kind of fronts how, how do we fund um, these kind of alternative well they 're not really alternative lifestyles but how do we fund people to to um, maintain lifestyles and operate within you know our society and this is these are really kind of interesting underlying issues. Within, it, within Ellie's whole project. Um, I did actually prepare a, a, a question, um, and again, it's to do with um, artists within higher education. I mean, I, I myself, as an artist who worked at Edinburgh College of Art um, about 15 or so years ago, and I left because I was, um, you know, working, as many part-time lecturers were at the time, when you would um, work uh, over the course of a year, and you wouldn't know If you were working the next year, you wouldn't get told until August, the month before when you would start in September, if you had a job. I mean, I I left and went on and did other things, and I'm a freelance practicing artist, but I look at people working within higher education, see that, you know, there's been strikes here in Glasgow by the the art students, the the lowering of, um, you know, professional input, Um, and, uh, you know, lecturers having continually more difficult situations to deal with, which I think, again, uh, Ellie's um, project has really highlighted this. So anyway, my question was, um, what do you think your project has highlighted about the role of higher education establishments and how they support their staff? Because, I mean, basically I think what Ellie has, has done, in a way, has been what, in the past, would have been called taking a sabbatical and th- uh, I was thinking about it this weekend. It's something I've not heard of within uh, education. You just do not hear about anybody taking a sabbatical anymore. It's like, you know, how, how could anyone justify that now when the actual art lecturers are pretty much working zero-hour contracts? They're working for the hours that they're, they're within institutions. So anyway, that, that's my question is, how do you see um, higher education? How, how should they be supporting their staff? I think that's a big question. So, sorry for asking. So yeah, a big question. something
0: something I'm reading at the moment. Actually, is this idea of like the economic system that we have at the moment being the long way round to delivering good lives, and that we do so much shit that's totally unnecessary just to to provide for for people, and that actually it's about refocusing on what we're actually doing in these institutions, which in my opinion is teaching teaching young people and and giving them the best possible start in life. Um, So I think with all of this, all of these um, issues really, it's about we all need the opportunity to slow down and uh, really think about um, what it is we actually, um, what actually makes us happy and healthy. And that's, I guess, one of the greatest ironies of this project is that I didn't get the opportunity to do that. Maybe if I had just taken a year's leave um, and done that, then. I would be more chilled now, <laughs> but um, yeah, I. I mean, it's, it's it's it is all it's all it is all it is all in here. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but
1: okay. Um, I, I'd like to ask a question. Okay. So, kind of some. Um, I think we've covered the questions floor. So again, just picking up on the the. Lady asked the question about our responsibility to our children. And I would just also tie into the gentleman who's gone now. I think he asked the question about um, citizens' basic income or universal basic income. It's just an appeal to the room to familiarise yourselves with this territory, please. It's been discussed with regard to Glasgow. Uh, Ellie's made it a core part of her own research. I think we all need to consider what it means in a world which is... Uh, where the divide is growing greater uh, and the unrest that we see and some of the issues around Brexit, election of Donald Trump and other things are also tied in to the alienation of people from themselves and their societies. And we see this extremist culture growing. One of the kind of tonics to that which has come from deep left and is becoming really a rather central idea, which the SNP are kind forward, is this idea that you as a citizen are due uh, uh, an income which, the, which you just get. And this is the idea of basic income. Basic income, as it's proposed for Glasgow, and Glasgow is nominated as a trial case, would be about four grand more than Ellie got for, from Creative Scotland. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's the proposal that every citizen would be entitled. And there are many different arguments for this, and I think we do need to familiarise themselves with them. But I think one of the things that, uh, that I carry the greatest admiration for what Ellie has set herself at. I can see as somebody who knows her a little bit, but not particularly well, what she has put herself through to uh, explore territory with great courage, even to be here today, to face up to a kind of media shitstorm that I hope I remain invisible enough never to have to face and would not wish upon anybody. And I think that, um, You know, I take great inspiration from not just the presentation today but from the courage of conviction. And I think the reason I asked who in the room considers themselves an artist and who not is that the hope is that there's enough in what you've seen from Ellie's presentation to encourage in this space that the artists in the room who are trying to understand and articulate for ourselves is that relation between active citizenship and art the divided territory, what's in common. As we go forward and we try and build that together, I think that the, wor- the words creative outlook, which Ellie keeps referring to in her practice and her talk, and, th- and I'm reminded a question, questions, that I really hope our children in this country are going to grow up with a relation to their in- intrinsic value. That it's a default given that they are valuable and that they have something inside them, that we all have inside us uh, that bone to do something with our lives beyond what is set out for us in the economic systems as they currently are, and really would be facilitated. One of the great fears, the reason that Switzerland voted not to take, which in their case was something like four grand a month, for So what would that be? You know, a huge amount of money per year to be given for the rest of their lives. The reason they, one of the reasons they didn't take it was because people are terrified. What the fuck are we going to do if we don't work? You know, our society is going to fall apart. We're going to become lazy and indolent and we'll start to fail. And I think that one of the things that Ellie's model shows is just how busy you can be. Just how much <laughs> you can do if you can take the time. And I think it's a great model, amongst many other models, to think about as we move to discussing should Glasgow have, you know, be one of the test cities for universal basic income, where, you know, you get enough money. The two things that happen in the test cities where they've done it is, one, uh, visits to hospital decrease, two, divorce rate increases, because apparently... Uh, you know, particularly the female of the species will, will sort of choose to get divorced more often if they feel they're slightly more financially stable. So that is the studies, the places that they've done before, those are the two stats that we have. But um, I think we're kind of out of time now here, but I know Ellie was keen to say that if we wanted to, if anybody wanted to retire to the CCA, some of us were going to go there and continue what I think is, of course, an ongoing discussion. I think we—I really like to thank Ellie. And I think one of the courageous things about what Ellie's done today, in being here to think out loud, is that she's just literally finished. It's got to take you a year or more of gestation to know what you've done, and to think about what was valuable and what's throwaway. So to put yourself into this situation, I think, has been, you know, uh, really valuable, but also great courage. And I think we should give you a resounding round of applause and just thank you very <laughs> <Great>. much. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Where's our list of thank yous? <laughs> I've got a few thank yous. <laughs> thank you to these guys, thank you to all of you. Thank you to Creative Scotland. Thank you to Creative Carbon Scotland, who funded £100 for the cost of the venue. Um, And and thank you to Kevin and Stuart and Neil, who's been taking pictures. And that's all, I think. So yeah, thank you very much for coming.